Alright, welcome to Now This Is Podcasting. I'm your host, Connor, and I'm here with resident film stop, Calvin. Uh, thanks for having me on. And this is part two of our review and discussion of Borgman. Again, thanks to Riri Nomad for leaving this as a suggestion on our YouTube video. Uh, go ahead and leave a suggestion, because uh, odds are we'll probably review it. So uh, I'm excited to get into this one. First episode was more about, let's kind of discuss the characters and narrative in general. This is going to dive more into theories and what do we think Borgman is, like what is maybe kind of try to tack down what the story is about, what it's trying to say. And so part of that is kind of frustrating because it's hard to know where to start with a movie like this. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah, even I, like, I don't, I don't really struggle with movies, I feel like, all that much, except, except when we get to the postmodern, because a lot of times we're trying to make sense of things. Like, stories are ways that human cultures have exchanged information and data for so long that when we see stories, we expect there to be a point, because they contain information that's useful to us. That is not the case with postmodern works, and so there's a lot of... Um, this I think this is a postmodern work masquerading as a story. Um, Ooh, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, and so I think that um, like where where I start here is generally like, is there a story, and what is the story? And we've talked about that at length. Um, there seems to be some sort of story. Uh, I think we can say that with yeah, yeah. some sense. There's a synopsis <laughs> we've provided. We did watch the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is like, so are we ex- are we telling this story to explore a feeling or an emotional or psychological state? Are we exploring an aspect of culture or politics or an event in history? Um, and then when we're looking for the point, like what someone is trying to say, are there are there loaded phrases that seem that uh, that seem like there are more than just the uh, the words on the screen, like they mean something more to the the discussion of what this artwork is? Um, but I think that really like Borgman is is so frustrating because I know we've said that a lot in the first part, but it's all of these supernatural elements um, on the on the face. They're they're weird and apparent, but they're not the point of the story. I don't even think they're really a device. Um, they're just kind of there. But the political and social critiques are really, really subtle. But I think they're the true message, if there is any true message or point to this movie. And I think I, I probably brought a more religious lens to the meaning of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just the way it opens suggests that. Yeah. But we'll talk a little bit later, like even the director has said that he is, that was not the intent. Yeah, which is just, uh, I, I'm so frustrated by that. Like, how do you have a priest yeah. chasing someone down? Um, With a loaded gun. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> performing liturgical rites and then like manhunting something. If they're not expressly, like there's a lot of anger in that, what, the way that priest acts. Um, and you would think that a man of God would be helping uh, someone who's homeless or or downtrodden. So what has Borgman done? Even though he said that I've never been a problem to anyone, what has that character done to that priest that would make him so angry? That would invoke righteous rage? Right, right. So I think that has so much religious context right there. Like there's so many connotations of like them being considered. Like a lot of reviews think they're like devils or demons uh, coming up out of the earth. Right, right. There's, I mean, obviously with the opening line of them descending upon the earth to strengthen their ranks that makes them feel evil. 
But that, like, Von Waterdam has specifically said, like, oh, yeah, I can kind of see why some people would think that. But that was, <laughs> what do you mean? I was like, I was like, gonna write that down. Like, obviously, you don't show a priest uh, at the beginning chasing down a character if they're not evil, if you don't have religious. Ca- so I don't get that part. I don't understand how you can misconstrue why you wouldn't include that character if that's not your point. Yeah, I totally agree. We've brought up that this movie is frustrating. I want to clarify. It's not frustrating in a way that I didn't like it. It's not frustrating in a way that made it less intriguing to watch or like, oh, I just like don't get it. This is a bad movie. It's frustrating in a way that like made me need to think about it. So I, I kind of wanted to clarify that before we dive into talking about how frustrating this movie is. Yeah. And I think it's frustrating in the same way that real life is frustrating. There aren't real answers. There are never absolutes. Uh, there's just infinite shades of gray and nuance and it's just how do you find your way forward but we think that everything has to be a point because stories are self-contained there's a beginning and an end i think that's probably that if we're going to come up with a theory for this movie that's probably the most accurate one (laughs) is that life is just that way like it just it doesn't have uh, clear rights and wrongs it doesn't have a clear motivation it is ambiguous and it's hard to kind of track down what we're doing in our life and so i think that's I know you kind of just said that, but it probably is the most accurate way to describe kind of the feeling of this movie. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. The first theory I kind of want to dive into is what is Borgman? Yeah, I think that's the most obvious thing, right? Is uh, the only thing that we know for sure is that he is some sort of incubus um, or specifically an Alp in Germanic folklore. Um, if you want to know what I'm talking about, search The Nightmare by a uh, by Henry Fuseli. It's an um, oil painting that shows an Alp laying on the chest of a woman. And what Alps and incubi do is they... Um, they feed off of the nightmares of people. They, they, they fill them with all of this dread and like a lot of like, like incubi, succubi, uh, Alps, all of those stories come from the, the real life phenomena of sleep paralysis that that feels like there's a weight on their chest and they wake up and they can't do anything. And that's where nightmares come from. So I just looked up the image. It's horrifying. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's <laughs> like it. Yeah. It's a little naked. I mean, Alp is, um, etymologically, uh, in line with elf. Yeah, so that's okay. why that creature looks that like. It looks like a little goblin bat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you have a mare in the back. Um, a mare being um, uh, like etymologically like nightmare, not mare of a horse, even though that is uh, a horse in the background. Yeah, no, I like the symbolism of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's the only thing that we know for sure is that the way that they've edited everything is uh, you have dreams that are clearly not happening and. Sorry, I'm looking at more images. I just made a face, but these are terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then it's just, it's personified here in the movie. And so incubi uh, are generally considered male demons, uh, succubi, uh, the female counterpart. There's some discussion in folk traditions that maybe it's bisexual it's the same demon that just uh it's just called different things because we have this idea of gender and so obviously the there would be counterparts to our genders and demons which is kind of you know anthropocentric which is kind of the the problem with a a lot of human interpretations of of these things it's all centered around our biology and not around like real evidence right right um so like Incubi uh, lay on top of sleeping women in order to engage in sexual activity with them. So we get kind of a sense that like maybe that's what Borgman is doing here. Like he is uh, 
coercing her to have sex with him, even though he doesn't seem to want it. But that's really, but that's really what incubus, incubi do is that they they're trying to get that sexual activity from them. So another way of looking at him is he's uh, a specific subtype of an incubus called an alp, and an alp is uh, an incubus in uh, Germanic folklore. Um, they look like uh, little demon goblins, but they feed on uh, nightmares, which fits really well for visually what we see Borgman doing where he's like kind of crouched over her and he's naked while she's having, and she's starting to have like these really graphic dreams about Richard beating her. Yeah. So yeah, I like, I really think that if you look at these paintings and then they're obviously like mimicked in the film with what Borgman's doing. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Being naked, sitting on her chest uh, and all of those come from the, the idea of sleep paralysis. That's where these folk traditions come from. So uh, if anyone doesn't know what sleep paralysis is, it's the, it's something where the body wakes up in the middle of the night, but it still has that what there's a there's a chemical that your brain releases in order so that your body doesn't move when it's dreaming. So it doesn't hurt itself. So suddenly you become conscious, but that uh, is still being um, your brain is still being regulated, like told that it's asleep. So you can't move. Yeah. And you feel like there's some evil presence in the room. Have you ever had sand. sleep paralysis? I've never had. I've never. I've been able to sleep 24 hours straight before, so I'm not the type. You are of- a good sleeper. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I have it very rarely, like maybe once a year, and it is oh. no joke the most terrifying thing that has ever happened to me. Just like not being able to move and being aware that I'm unable to move. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. Stuff you Stuff you should know does a really good podcast on sleep paralysis. Yeah, I bet. And they talk about like a. Uh, some articles people who like deal with it regularly and it it is horrifying the few times it's happened to me and it does it feels it feels malevolent it feels like there's evil around you i was scared to death the first time it happened to me (laughs) yeah exactly and so like um these traditions say that these creatures are uh poisoning the minds of the people they continually engage in sexual activity with so that they slowly become less and less human they start to go crazy and that's why um so i think that's what's kind of happening here it's suggested that that's what Borgman is doing and doing to her if anything can be said that he is doing to her but I think a lot of what the film is saying is that these things already existed and she he is just uh making lucid those things that she knows about Richard because I mean in things where he is not um uh, it's not a dream like when he beats up uh Borgman at the beginning of the movie um where he uh shoves marina inside or where um after she hits him which is kind of understandable she hits him uh while he's sleeping and then he oh my back. god that's a part of the movie that is like i, I think unintentionally funny yeah i think i got a little chuckle out of it because he's like what the hell are you doing yeah <laughs> backs her back and i was like it's not meant to be funny but i was like well i kind of get it like just from a dead sleep he gets slapped in the face yeah exactly but then he grabs her by the hair and takes her to the shower screams at her and tells her to wake up and i think that's one of the lines that really says like a lot of what's happening is marina's own delusion about the the circumstances that she that they're under yeah and i like the idea of it being an alp or an incubus but again part of that doesn't work for me because the idea of it's supposed to be like kind of getting some sexual interaction out of it like Borgman's like constantly denying Marina like Mm -hmm. his touch and it's not until the end where she thinks he's finally going to follow through with it and he ends up poisoning her so that's part of like the reason why I think it's interesting to talk about Borgman and what is he because he feels like he has attributes of uh, of an alp or an incubus but then he's ignoring other aspects of it that you would consider I guess kind of like canon for that type of uh, being yeah 
Exactly. And so there's a few other like supernatural things going on here. Like w- at the beginning when he always says, I'm here, um, like to announce his uh, presence. I think that's really interesting. There's just, it's just a line that sticks out as like not normal human dialogue, right? So why is it being said? And I think it it suggests the fact that he is uh, um, can mat- materialize in ways like the the stories around Alps are that you have to plug every hole in your house, like they could fit through keyholes um, that small. So that that's why he's announcing oh, wow. his presence is because it's not a space that he should have been in or could have been in, and. That's why it's just continuing that myth of how Alps in, infiltrate into a space. Oh, I, I like that a lot. It makes it very creepy to think it's just like a keyhole to mm-hmm. let him in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like some of the other supernatural things that we have is like the uh, the shapeshift, like the dogs. Like right, it's, right. It's, it's, it seems like that's Pascal and Ludwig, uh, like they're shapeshifting. And at one point, like and Marina sees another uh, dog in the uh, in the garden shed and asks if it's Camille. So mm-hmm. like it's like it's like she starts to get a sense that maybe he's not human. There's no other reason to ask that, and he hasn't displayed any treat any traits that would suggest, or at least he has not displayed any traits to her um, that would suggest that he is supernatural. So it's weird that she that she acknowledges that. Um, then the other things are like the uh, clairvoyance he seems to have. Uh, he calls her Maria without ever having met her, unless they actually had and they were, you know, she was a nurse. Um, there's the one where Richard comes home early and he's taking a bath and he seems to know. And she's like, you better follow me. And he's like, no, you better follow me. And he just so smoothly walks through the house right behind Richard's back. And yeah, the, right. I think that that's, there's a level of knowing um, that that shows like that's, not human um and the same thing like you he sees marina uh coming to the the summer house um and he's just hiding in some bushes but then it cuts and he's in that he's in the bed asleep how did he how did he see her how did he know the editing is so weird there that it's like is this happening in a dream does he is he seeing her um or did he see like a different time like in the future that, that would allow him to know that yeah, no, I, we didn't really obviously talk about it in part one about kind of the supernatural aspects to this because we wanted to save it for kind of our theory section. But it's just a whole nother layer to this movie that it feels like it's hard to track what it's saying and then to add this whole other element to it, it makes it even harder to track and, and again, keeps it really intriguing. Um, I, I think this movie works better by having ambiguity to the nature of Borgman and uh, Ludwig and Pascal. Mm-hmm. Like we don't really know who they are or what they are. And so or how makes, they do any of yeah. the things that they do. And so it makes it even harder to understand like what were like, what was the the means to what end, you know, mm-hmm. like what was the goal of this? Yeah. What were the ends and what were the means? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like we get a sense of some of the ends and we get a sense of some of the means, but not enough that we really understand what they mean by as a character or even as a person. Like we seem to, I feel like we understand, even though there's more, there are more grays and more, um, ways to misunderstand in real life we have a sense of why people act the way they do and we're just not given enough here i think i think part of the way it works is if i mean they are clearly some kind of supernatural being whether you want to say they're uh, incubus or an alp or like a demon or something like that like we would never even comprehend what their motivation was anyway so by keeping it uh, kind of always at an arm's length and you can never really figure out what it is I think in a way it makes this film work really well. That's why I think you need to include that they are supernatural in some way. And like we would never understood what they wanted anyway. So the fact mm-hmm. that there is no resolution to this film, to me, really works. 
Yeah, I think so too. And then obviously the last bit uh, are the the scars, but I think you have some more theories that you want to talk about in a second. Yeah, I again, I kind of took a more religious lens to this. Like we mentioned earlier, the way the movie opens up kind of lends to that. The idea that maybe he's a demon. Uh, I read that some interpretations that he is actually the devil. And one of the ways I think that works really well is imagining him as uh, a representation of the snake in the Garden of Eden. So this beautiful house, this wonderful family that Marina has could represent the Garden of Eden. They're even later on working on a literal garden in the backyard. And he is temptation. He's drawing her away from that. He's dismantling this family and tempting her. And so I really like the way that that works. Even in the end, when they they literally destroy the garden, they fill it in. Uh, Richard and Marina, who I think you could say represents Eve, they've succumbed to the evil and uh, the succumb to the knowledge of good and evil the same way Eve did. She's killed, but in a way you could look at that as being cast out of the Garden of Eden. Mm. And then I really love the way it ends with the, the children leaving the same way like they were cast out. And now they're put into a world that means them harm. And you could look at uh, Borgman and uh, Pascal and Ludwig and the rest of the people around him as this is the temptation, this is the harm that is now surrounding this family as they are leaving the Garden of Eden. So I think there's like really neat religious connotations you could take this and interpretations and i think the idea that that was totally missed on the director and not intentional is Um, again so odd to me no i think i think i can take it one step further for you um the etymology of camille um comes from kamael uh and it's the name of one of the archangels who uh led the the group of angels that forced adam and eve out of the garden wow yeah. That's perfect. That's, yeah. That's so, what I'm saying. Like, that fits so well, I think. And on top of that, he's, he, you know, he was supposed to have a, a sword, but in iconography, he's generally depicted holding a cup. Oh, wow. Okay. So when he poisons them at the end with the cups of wine, yes, it's perfectly in line with what Camille is. Right. Now, see, that's what I'm saying. It's like, a, I don't think they're, the interpretation of him being an incubus or an alp works just as well as him you could you could vision him as the snake in the garden of eden yeah exactly which is what is so fun about this movie yeah so that's what's so weird it's like so we have uh camille being his name he acts like the the angel that cast them out of the garden we have uh him acting as an alp this supernatural being poisoning dreams and then we also have his name being borgman um which you know we talked about in the first half is uh uh etymologically um comes from a line of uh, people who were landlords for aristocracy. So you have a clear indication that this is uh, a classist statement. He's working for uh, a feudal lord. I mean, the movie is called Borgman for for a literal for that literal purpose. So which of these is it? What? Why they don't fit together in a way in a way that you would expect. You know, because the uh, you could if you throw out the Alp stuff then I think all of this works a lot better. You know what I mean? Um, if you throw out the, the supernatural stuff, then you can tie together the religious and the and the um, the political uh, a lot better. But with all three of them here, they all are at odds with each other. None of them really fit together in a way that you would think that a story about classism would. I, I think it still works for me because I like the confusing nature of this movie and that it's hard to tie down what it's about. And I think when you have all those elements, while they're maybe not working in a cohesive way, it adds to kind of the confusion and unsettling nature that this movie, I think, is that's really the the tone it's going for. And so I think they still work together in that way 
while narratively they're not strung together in a way that is as cohesive. Mm -hmm. So I have one more Bible-related kind of, I think, uh, interpretation you could take to this. Uh, You mentioned that Pascal and Ludwig, they appear, like I think like we assume partway through the film when uh, Borgman's telling a story to the children and he tells them that they're too early to go away. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I definitely think the interpretation is supposed to be that that's Ludwig, uh, Ludwig and Pascal. There's a lot of really interesting Bible verses surrounding dogs and kind of how the Bible treats dogs. Hmm. They're more negative than I think that you would think, considering it's supposed to be like man's best friend. So you would think that <laughs> you would think that the Bible would probably have good things to say about it. But Philippians chapter 3, verse 2 says, Look out for the dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so to put dogs in the same verse as evildoers obviously like puts a negative connotation on them. There's another verse in Revelation chapter 2, verse 15, which is all fire and brimstone. So it's obviously going to have some like really big words and big feelings to it. But uh, it says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexual and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehoods. Hmm. So again, I think that you could subscribe that to these characters in this and having them taking on the form of dogs you could view as like them being the evildoers and the sorcerers which i think makes sense considering they seem to have some kind of uh, supernatural power to them yeah exactly and i have the last one is from psalms chapter 22 verse 16 it's for the dogs encompass me a company of evildoers encircle me they have pierced my hands and feet which again, I just think speaks to the nature of Borgman and all the other people in his group who are slowly encompassing this family. They're slowly infecting their lives. So I love that idea of like they're being encompassed and this verse kind of lends to that. I don't, obviously, that probably wasn't the intent because the director has said he didn't want it to really have a religious meaning to it. But there's just some really cool, like there's really cool things you can pull from these verses that you could put on this movie to make the dogs have the feeling of like something evil surrounding the family. And I like that a lot. Again, this is a movie that made me want to research and figure out more stuff. Mm -hmm. So I I would never look up Bible verses on dogs if I found this movie uninteresting. Right. And I think the, the only dog breed name specifically in the Bible is actually the greyhound. Right. I did. uh, Yeah. I did find that in my research as well, which again, I think is just, how can you say this movie didn't have a religious meaning to it? I, I think (laughs) the, uh, the interview that I saw was that specifically the opening scene was not meant to give the connotation that they're demons being chased out by a priest. Not that the whole thing didn't have uh, a religious meaning. Okay. I And I yeah. would think that that makes, more, makes sense. But I also thought that the beginning was supposed to have a religious connotation because the priest was chasing them through the woods. So I don't really know for sure what the, what the point is. I think it's too much of a coincidence that uh, Camille's etymology is Kameo. Um, for what we keep seeing here. Right, right. Um, but I don't know. Coincidences happen all the time. There's a lot of stuff in this movie, I think, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So that could be one thing. It could be a red herring. Right. So let's move on to, I think, one of the, I don't want to say controversial, but it's really hard to figure out what this part of the movie is even about. I want mm-hmm. to talk about the surgery that's done on the children. You see the scars on their backs. Um, what is the surgery and does it even matter to you? Do you think it even plays an important role in this movie? I think so. Um, again, that uh, article that I mentioned in or that blog post that I mentioned in the the first part really talks about how th- 
at most what you can really think of it as is as an allegory for how you exit the this political lands this political landscape this social critique of uh, late stage capitalism it's a changing of the of the person in either uh, an indoctrination or a removal of uh, of some part of self that is so ingrained that that's the only way that you can extricate yourself from the system so i think that's the only way is that and anybody that and that's ultimately why the gardener dies why the gardener's wife dies why the the other applicant died and why Marina and Richard die is because they're not willing to give themselves up to that or they're not they're not able to in what other in some way or they don't understand like what's necessarily going on to give themselves up in order to leave this system. So I don't think that I care exactly what happens. I'd love to know a little bit more because it's right. so weird and ambiguous. I don't love vagary. I love and I love clues. And there's nothing here that gives you a clue about what's what's happening. I would be fine with this the way everything was shot if there were just one or two other clues about what kind of surgery or like a, an implanting or a removal of something, some line about something else somewhere that would let us know that this meant something. There's no other clue that the movie gives us that this means anything. Right. I like the idea of it being something put in them more than taken out. There were theories I had read that, and this is the show most shallow take I think you can have on this movie, is that they're just vagrant drifters who harvest organs to sell later. <laughs> and I think the location of the scar is really intentional. Um, it's far too high to be like a, a kidney removal. And if it, I, I had seen suggestions that they were removing a lung, but that surgery, you remove it through the chest. You wouldn't do it through the back. You have your scapula and ribs in the way, so you would never do it like that. So I think it's intentional, and I think it adds this like level of sinister mystery to it because we don't know what it's about. We don't know if it's something taken out or put in, but I think it's almost certainly not uh, organ harvesting. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think that's like probably the worst take you can have on what this movie is about. Yeah, because why would you take someone's organs and then take the whole person? Yeah, and then like assimilate them into... Yeah, now you have I mean, to feed yeah. them. Why not just take the organs if that's what's valuable? Right. So I don't I don't love that take. And I think it's... Again, I think the placement of the incision is, is on purpose to let you cue you in that this is not about organ harvesting because you would never harvest an organ that way. <laughs> um, not that I've done it. I just... My, <laughs> my anatomical knowledge, like that you would get nothing out of a, a scar like to the to the right of like the... Like over the shoulder blade. There was nothing there. So I, I thought that that was kind of an odd take. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what the scar means. Again, it just adds that bit of intriguing frustration to the movie. And I, like you said, I would have liked more clues on it. But again, I still think this movie works fine with not telling me what it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if we also think back to our, uh, our research into witches for Robert Eggers, the witch, um, witches were sometimes known to have or thought to have scars or marks um, after their deals with the devil. So that could also be what these are, is uh, a physical representation of a deal with the devil and another like, supernatural element. I like that a lot. That, yeah. See, that that jives more to me with the mystery with what of the story. Yeah, and what with what we've set up with things being weird and supernatural and not necessarily like, I mean, he has an antiseptic and bandages. That doesn't really scream witchcraft to me, but, you know... I think that's why is that the movie is leading you in a way that doesn't make you think that it's supernatural, even though that the history of it would suggest so. A f sort of part that got a chuckle out of me is when they're drugging the children to do the surgery. <laughs> it's in this Tasmanian devil cup, which I had that literal cup as a kid. So I know that that scene is supposed to feel really gross and, 
you know, they're taking advantage of these children and it's, you don't really know what's going on. But I like laughed through it because I was like, oh man, I've definitely drank red Kool-Aid out of that exact cup. <laughs> so that was just a little, a little funny part about it. But yeah, but yeah so you've I drank the Kool-Aid. Exactly. <laughs> I also love that when uh, Cena's boyfriend goes to sit with them on the couch and they are just so out of it, like absolutely zapped because they've been drugged. <laughs> yeah. They're literally not even conscious. Yeah. It's like, he probably looks at it. He's like, oh, just kids tuckered out. But you know, as the viewer that they've just been drugged and had something happened to them. So I think that's like kind of just a, it's a really weird way or it's a really unsettling way to like keep that momentum from that scene moving on into another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, another thing that I really want to talk about is the, um, the uh, story that Borgman tells the children, the white child above the clouds. I know I've mentioned it a few times, but I think it's a really interesting allegory for uh, Camille's story. Um, it's about uh, a white uh, about a child who is standing at the edge of the lake, and there's a beast that lives at the bottom, and it guards the key to happiness. Um, I think the lakes lake is such an uh, important symbol in this film because we have uh, the first time he mentions it is when he's in the bathtub. So I think the bathtub is also reminiscent of lakes, ponds. Um, and then the next bath that we see are both Richard and uh, Marina in one talking about hiring a new gardener. Yeah. Um, and I think that's foreshadowing of them being dumped into. Their, right. They're, they're ultimately conspiring their own doom by hiring yeah, a new gardener. I love gardener. that because they end up in the, yeah, they both end up in the pond later on. That's a, that's a really, yeah, that's a clever tie-in. Yeah. Like that and, foreshadowing. Right. And then the, you also have the pond where the, uh, they dump the other bodies with their heads in cement. Which is just so horrifying <laughs> yeah and then they go swimming in it oh my god yeah that was one of the other parts that, again i have said this before it's the dark nonchalantness to this movie that makes it so unsettling that they've just done this horrible thing and she's like oh, i'll just i'll just go for a dip it's so it's so creepy yeah what is death to them if they're if they're not human i think that's how uh when the comment was left for us to review this it was like yeah it's the movie where the devil dumps people's cement heads into the lake and i was like i'm intrigued because <laughs> i don't think he knew the name uh right off the bat so like we communicated more through the comments and everything and that's how we found out it was borgman but mm. just off of that small description i was like i'll watch it yeah that sounds yeah i mean we're we're thinking of watching uh titan right oh yeah oh yeah that's uh that would that won the the can uh palm d'or last year yeah i think we've discovered our niche is really obscure foreign films <laughs> yeah i i mean niche in, in terms of like these are the movies we want to talk about it's not like our subscriber list has <laughs> has really shot up since we found our niche so i had mentioned earlier the idea of them being drifters who just harvest organs i think that's a bad theory for this movie i have other bad theories oh so one is that it's just a uh, marina's having a psychological breakdown none of this is actually happening it's maybe like her own guilt or anger to richard that and so she's imagining him being killed. She's manifested some character in Borgman who will come and solve her, all her problems. And then later on, she feels guilty for these thoughts that she's had. And the only way to reconcile them is for her to lose everything, you know, lose her life, lose her children. I don't think that that theory works very well. I like to think of it more as all of these characters are in play. And I don't really like this as a like an internal struggle. Yeah, there's, we're shown too many things that Marina wouldn't know about and certainly wouldn't dream of. You know, we wouldn't know about the uh, 
them dumping the bodies. We wouldn't know about uh, them uh, performing the surgery on the children. We wouldn't care about Stina and Pascal, which is also pretty funny when, when she's like, don't you want to hold me in, in your arms? He's like, <laughs> nay, thank you. <laughs> I love that he, she's still standing there like waiting for attention. He just turns off the light and yeah. rolls over. <laughs> Okay, that's that's part of this movie, which I wouldn't describe it as a pitch black domestic comedy, um, but I also think it does have little funny parts in it. So yeah, exactly. And and Stina's an interesting character. Like I'll just say this for the moment. Like this is the confluence of someone on the outside of society that is just fine with the way things are, and there's someone who's trying to exit that. And but it's still carrying all of this old baggage and doesn't know how to operate inside outside of this. Like they don't have the same motivations anymore because they're from two different places. He's literally from a hole in the ground and she's from Denmark. Right, right. Yeah. I do like how she works in this movie. It's just again, this movie just feels like a lot of layers on top of each other. You're kind of trying to dig through the meaning of it. Mm -hmm. But like her immediately like I'm assuming she's like drugged or something to. And that's why she falls for Pascal. I don't think they show her drinking anything. No. So it's later on where she has the operation done. Yeah, they just, they just, I mean, it's strongly implied that they have sex, right? Yeah, but I so, guess I don't know what was the moment that led to that. Yeah. I besides think, him just being like, oh, come and have a seat next to me. I think it's kind of the same thing. It's like Stina's not quite as ingrained as Marina, which is why she ultimately leaves. Um, she sees Pascal as an exit from this, uh, this poor representation of like what she wants she doesn't like this it may this might not have been the life she imagined leaving denmark and coming to the netherlands as an au pair and that's ultimately what she sees in pascal is like this this way out no oh, yeah i and like a that. bit of a romantic quality i mean a lot of i think a lot of times we we think of uh domestic escapes as being romantic and like finding yourself and that's kind of what she thinks right and pascal is like no this is just this is business man yeah right i think we had mentioned earlier that everything they do seems to be so procedural mm-hmm. and that's why she wants affection out of him and he's like no like i just did what i was supposed to already like now we're done yeah and not even like rude or anything just like oh i no i'm not thank you you can go away now like an exchange of goods and now he's done with the transaction yeah yeah exactly yeah, we're we're closed for the evening so i have one more bad theory is that this film is about white guilt and I think it's purely from a throwaway line um, about Richard being racist because he doesn't want the black gardener. And I don't. Th- and maybe the white child above the the clouds. I wonder if that has something to do with it. But I, yeah, go ahead. I think that line functions more to just really ingrain in the viewer that like Richard's a garbage human being, and to kind of set him up as sort of your pseudo villain. Yeah, uh, kind of like a, a sort of distraction from Borgman. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't. I, there is no part of this movie that thinks it's a commentary on white guilt. And if that's what you took away from this, I think you missed out on, again, all the other layers that are put into this movie. Yeah, I think, if anything, there's it's more about classism than it is specifically about racism. If anything, it's those uh, those races being uh, representative of a lower class. Um, and that's what the movie's talking about. But it's using race as a metaphor for class specifically because that would incite more outrage. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I certainly think that, especially in the States, it's race does play a role in what kind of class you're in, your socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. So I think you could say it's an element of this, but right. to say that the movie is about white guilt, I didn't, uh, I didn't quite track with. I, I don't, I don't agree with that one. Yeah, Again, of I think all it's of kind the, of a shallow take on it. Yeah, of all of the momentary blips of allusions to something greater, that's probably the smallest one. 
you know? Right. I think there are more conversations about politics. There are more con- uh, conversations about the, the supernatural and the religious and also, like, the like the dreamy weirdness. Like, there's more of the, that stuff. Like, I can see why someone would think that um, this is all in Marina's head because after that garden scene um, or in the garden shed where she's breaking down, it's all a delusion, and the family's walking back inside, there's actually, like, Alonka is actually a ballerina in the background there twirling on the lawn. Right. Which is weird. And, I mean, like, there's also uh, another one that really stuck out to me is uh, when they're first pulling up the tree. Did you did you notice that um, Pascal is pulling out the tree uh, with a chain on a backhoe? Right. When you first see the tree, though, it's not chained up, but it's still being uprooted. Do you think that's a continuity error? Could, or? No, no, it's not possible for it to be pulled up. It would have been a, uh, an expressly. It would have been made that way to think like that it was just coming up out of the ground. Okay. So it wouldn't, yeah, there's no, because it physically couldn't happen. Right, right. I mean, that's what I mean by the the weirdness of it, is it's, is it a suggestion of a desire to uproot the um, the wilderness and impose upon uh, the world your idea of society, of class, of uh, establishment capitalism? Like that, I think, is kind of like the allegor- the like the symbol of the garden is we're controlling nature. And Pascal and Ludwig and Borgman all came up out of the ground from nature and invaded this space that yeah. where these humans thought that they had control. I think you could also look at it as symbolizing the up like the family being uprooted. They're yeah. being taken out of their nice fancy home and they're gonna end up in the wilderness. So like I said, this this movie has so many interpretations for it. It's fascinating. Yeah. So we've gotten our theories out on what we think this movie's about, who we think these characters are, but there's some more information from the director, kind of what influenced this film. Yeah, so one of his uh, influences was Funny Games by Michael Haneke. And Funny Games is a really interesting horror, psychological horror story about uh, two teenagers that invade the vacation home of a family. And they basically just torture them the whole time. Von Wurderham said he basically just ripped that uh, straight, ripped that off and put that into his movie. And that's kind of like what's happening here right. is like evil kind of lives um, in unseen places. I think that's the, the tagline on the the cover of this movie but what makes funny games so interesting and one it has one of the most disturbing twists in in cinema i'd say not because of what uh, it being gruesome or or anything like that it's how it changes um, your experience as the viewer, you have all of this sadism in this story. Like these people are being tortured and twisted and partway through the movie, one of the, uh, women wrestles away a shotgun and shoots one of the guys and he dies. And the other guy's freaking out. He's like, no, no. Like, how could this happen? And then just like, he just starts screaming, like, where's the remote? Where's the remote? And he grabs a remote, uh, off the tea, off the couch and rewinds like 30 seconds before of actual screen time. So before she kills him, this time he takes the shotgun away. And then the rest of like the movie, which I want to say is like, there's still like 30, 45 minutes. Then they just continue to torture and kill these people until they've won. I had not seen funny games, but that does sound like an amazing twist. I would, I did not think that's what, where you're going with it. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what, well, and what, when your, your experience as an audience member, then is like, Whoa, what am I watching? Like, what, what is the point of this? Why then was all of this violence? If it wasn't in, in service of, um, 
you know, the triumph of the human spirit or uh, a conversation of classism, how we should treat people of lower class or mental illness better so that these things don't happen. We're just watching a family get tortured and killed for the sake of being tortured and killed. Like right. it's, it's, it's entertainment. It's a meta discussion about like why we create stories like that as a device. And if it's, if it's all that it is, is just killing and torture. Why do we think of it as entertainment? That seems to fall in the, it sounds like a more intelligent version of like a saw movie. Yeah. Those just feel like violence for violence sake. Yeah. And that's pretty much what it's commenting on. Like, well, obviously saw came out after hunting funny games came out in 1997, but I mean, hyper violent movies have existed for a, a long time. So it's not necessarily a, a recent reaction, but it's just, why do we tell stories like that? And why do we want to hear stories like that? Right. That sounds fascinating. We should do a podcast on funny games. Yeah. Now and that now that just hearing that, I know it's been spoiled for me, but it's still like. But I still want to dive deep into it because I do think that that's interesting to talk about. It's like, why do people line up to go see these movies? Yeah, it's so odd. Would you take a step back and really look at it? Yeah, like why do we just we enjoy like people being killed, brutal and violent deaths? Like think like the harder they fall, tenant. Like all of these people are getting blown up and killed, and it's just it's well, like just a uh, part of the action. What is that? Um. Not the plague. What is it called? The movie where Americans get the day to kill people. With oh, purge the purge. The purge. Yeah, it seems like those kinds of movies. Like, why do these exist? Just to, it's just people being able to act out one day a week, and like that somehow seems like a small commentary on it. If we were allowed to act however we wanted, this is how it would be. Which I don't think is true. I think most of society is structured in a way that you don't gain anything by torturing and killing your neighbor. But the way that those movies play it out is like, this is human nature. This is how we would actually be if we didn't live in this constructed society that doesn't allow those things. And that's why I find those movies to be absolute garbage, because I don't think that that's how people would act. No, but yeah. I, and I still don't understand why people flock to go see those movies and why there's like eight of them now in spinoffs. Like, I, they don't make any sense to me. But I would like to see a movie that is critiquing and commenting on that by by rewinding it. You're allowing for more violence to exist in your movie just for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of where I, where I think that Borgman is, is because I think everything kind of exists in, in a vacuum. You have uh, specifically um, political commentary about classism, about what it means to be at this, sta- this, this status um, and how to treat people, how to think of, of products like that bear um, within this system. You're not you're not necessarily above it. You're a part of it, and at any point you could be taken over by um, by the wilderness that is uh, um, outside of capitalism, outside of society. But then you have all of the religious things that uh, you know. This is one way of of the absurdity of of this domestic scene. Like, why are we doing any of the things that we're doing? And then you have the supernatural element. Like, why? Like, is this just something happening in her head? I mean, Camille does give her a pill at the end of the movie. And like she she says, like, do you don't you have something for me? Like, it's something that's been happening for a while. Is right. kind of what it implied. I don't. But again, it's only happened once. And so I, there's no there's no pattern to any of this. What did you think of the end when Camille goes to pick up the wine glasses and he switches his hands around so they're crossed? Mm-hmm. Like he has to think for a minute, like, which one did he? Yeah, which poison. Yeah, exactly. And I, I thought that would have given, I think, a little bit of satisfaction to the audience if 
it, it kind of leads you to believe that, oh, maybe he'll poison himself and like the bad guy gets what he deserves or something like that. Because I think, mm-hmm. again, that's how we're kind of programmed to think of movies. Like we want that conclusion. We kind of want the bad guy to get what's coming to him. And I think a lot of ways you could interpret this movie is that Borgman is the bad guy. We'll get into a little bit later about maybe why he's not. Um, but I like that kind of moment of hesitation he has. He's like, which one is it? And as the audience, you're like, yes, like get your comeuppance. And it doesn't happen. And it's just, it echoes a lot of what this movie is about. Like there is no clear conclusion to it. And the fact that you could look at him as not getting his just desserts in the end, he still like gets out of it in a way. I liked that. I like that little scene, just kind of just that little bit where he's like, wait a minute, which one is it? I, I can see what you mean by that. But I, I, at that point, I had felt like everything was was faded. It was destined like th- she had orchestrated her own destruction. And I think the reason that he does his hands like that is because he's specifically thinking like it's a callback maybe to other films where they're thinking like, OK, like if I switch the glasses like this, one of them is poisoned and it's a it's a, a clear action that suggests there's something wrong with one of them. And he's going through his head like, OK, yeah, it's it's meant to show like this is about to happen. She's about to die. There's no question. She's not falling asleep like he is going to kill her. And I think they wanted to make it explicit in a subtle way, which is <laughs> without saying it. I, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like an oxymoron, but I yeah. get what you meant. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of want to dive into why you think Borgman and the gang are not evil. So, yeah, I would say that they're not necessarily evil um, because a lot of what's already happening is, is just there. Like I, I kind of thought for a little while that Borgman was maybe a djinn. Like she asks uh, if he can come back in another capacity. And then he asks about the gardener um, or, and he's, yeah. And he says like, yeah, it'll have consequences. How do you feel about your gardener? Basically suggesting like, well, I'm going to have to kill him. Like so, a monkey paw type of thing. Yeah, exactly. So I think that that's the whole thing. Like this is going to happen. Is this what you want? And she's like, yeah. And she wants, uh, he doesn't do anything um to richard until she says for him to do it like he is an agent of of the disdain and chaos within her not um not one that is uh giving her ideas not one that is making her do anything in kind of the in kind of opposite to the how the serpent uh acts in the adam and eve story uh the serpent is specifically trying to tempt her i think that um here he is just presenting himself I'm here, do it with me what you will. Like a tool, almost. Yeah, exactly. And that's why uh, uh, I argue it, like they, he's argued as to be uh, an exit from the scene, from the domestic sense uh, of why she keeps him around. Right. I, I think, too, the way you can look at him as not being just inherently evil is that the way everyone seems to be complicit in what's going on, like no one's actively against Borgman throughout this whole movie. Like you said, like Marina is like using him to to meet her own goals Mm -hmm. and, you know, the kind of assimilation of like Pascal and Ludwig into the family. Like even the children are not like alarmed that he's in their room telling them bedtime stories. Like he seems to be in a way accepted and they're not really forced into anything. I think there is like a level of manipulation going on, but they all seem to be okay with it. Every character that is being acted on by Borgman seems to be fine with what's happening and so can you say that someone is inherently evil because they he got people to agree with him or kind of follow through on how they actually felt and use him as a means to that? So right. yeah, I, I, yeah, I like the idea of them not being inherently evil, even though kind of the beginning of the movie would set it up as like good versus evil, you know, like God versus the devil. I think that yeah. it's set up in that way. And so for it to end in a way that 
doesn't feel like good versus evil it's just it, it's just an, again another layer of this movie that makes it so fascinating to talk about yeah exactly and i think the only you know obviously killing dr baumgarten at the end that was a little over the top yeah, probably they probably didn't need to kill him um did I they think really you could have just had uh who is it brenda i think you should you could have just had brenda just show up as the doctor like beat beat the other doctor there and be like yeah. oh he was out of the office i'm his replacement i i i agree with you i think that was just a little bit of extra violence to maybe drive home the idea that they were for the black comedy yeah but i don't think it yeah i agree with you i don't think it was necessary to kill him at all right it's just kind of funny like that those are the lengths that they went to like oh man we gotta we gotta be sure that a real doctor doesn't find out that we've performed surgery on them yeah i do want to mention real quick the really amazing subtle scene where borgman's called brenda to go and pose as the doctor for the gardener and elanka is eating a popsicle she finishes it and brenda takes the popsicle stick puts it in her pocket and just right there, it just seemed like just a weird, quirky thing. This is a weird movie. But she uses it later when she's posing as the doctor as a tongue depressor. And I was fascinated by it. It was like that little callback just like brought this movie to another level, even though it was something so small. I just thought the idea that they were like smart enough and like kind of scrappy enough and intuitive enough to be like, oh, let me get that popsicle stick. It'll work, work for our bit later. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating. I love how they all know what's what's happening too because uh he's Borgman is talking to Brenda like, Yeah, I think poisoning and he's just slowly taking off his tie and then just has it at his waist and like just kinda lifts his wrist and Alonka takes it, knowing exactly what she's supposed to do with it, which is weird to think about yeah. when you like though this is something that they've done before. They've killed someone with, with a tie. Yeah, like, yeah. That that's literally what she was supposed to do. And it's like, yeah, Alonka doesn't feel like she's well indoctrinating enough because she was really struggling to strangle that woman <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's it, again there's just so many just little things that happen in this movie that i was just like really captured by and i love the popsicle stick thing it's so small but it's so cool <laughs> yeah exactly but yeah like i wish there were more patterns of things like that there's just a lot of different things tonally there's a lot of different things uh thematically there's a lot of different things symbolically action wise um, the only thing that's really consistent is the way the film is shot. Um, there aren't reasons for us to think that um, we're changing perspectives or changing places or changing times um, because it's all very consistent in the way it's it's being shot. So it's, 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 it feels like a straight-up narrative in that way. And then all of these things are so disparate. And um, I think that's why I don't know how to rate this. I don't know how I feel about it as a, as a composite piece. I, I agree with you. Yeah. It's, it's hard to kind of pin down where this movie's at and how to rate it. Um, but let's move on into our final thoughts. Um, like I've said before, I don't think there's really one right way to look at this movie. I think we discussed a couple of the wrong ways to look at this movie, <laughs> but a lot of the stuff we brought up just even in the conversation were just things that popped into my head while we were talking about it. And I don't think any of them are especially wrong. Um, this movie is so ambiguous and the lack of conclusion, I think, really leaves it open to interpretation and it's fun in that way it's it's fun in the way that um inception is not yeah everyone talks about that movie like i don't get it like what does the top mean like what is happening it it's not really important it doesn't matter if he's still in a dream or not like that's not the big twist or the 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 big hook for this movie and the idea that the reason that people talk about it being so ambiguous it's like it's really not the story is totally laid out for you which is a staple of christopher nolan movies You're told exactly what's going on. This movie is the antithesis of that. We have no idea really what's going on, and you really need to piece together things for yourself. 
So uh, I did like this movie and I did like that I got to think a lot through it. And I do like that I'll probably continue thinking about this movie for a while now. I, I think we had maybe talked about maybe revisiting this one after after a couple more viewings uh, later on in the future. This movie has a lot to it. The same way I think like Lighthouse has a lot to it. Yeah. Like, that, although, would be a, that would be a good movie to revisit too. Yeah. I don't know. I would like to revisit Lighthouse just because I like watching it every year. But I don't think that I'll really come away with an, another or a better interpretation. I'll come up with like a few more clues. Like... Eggers has left plenty of clues as to what he was trying to say in um, in a way that you can follow uh, a clear line of thought in a way that Von Wurderdom has has not done here. Right. That's why I think that you could watch this movie in a year and really feel differently about like what sticks out most. Is it the is it the social critique? Is it the the religious elements? Is it the supernatural elements? Or is it just the story? Like are those which one is going to land for you that day? And I think that's what I ultimately think of this. This is a really uh, fun, engaging entry into postmodern film in general because there are some really tedious postmodern works that don't mean anything, and that's the purpose. And it's express it's not expressly stated it's just like nothing's really happening no one's saying anything that makes any sense but here we're provided a story that would suggest something should be right um how many uh on a scale of one to ten kaputs where'd you put this one uh kaputs ha it's tough it doesn't i spent more time thinking about this film not because of its implications, but what it was implicating. A lot of time, I that's what I think about films. They resonate with me, and I think of its implications of like what it means to be, um, uh, uh, like with Midsummer, like uh, it, you know, a lot of like looking back at past relationships and like, have I really healed from some of those? Are they gonna? Are, do they stick around? Those types of things, and like how they they speak to me. This one doesn't really resonate with me, but it's stuck around so much longer than a lot of other films because I'm just trying to. Do I just not get it? Is this just a Dutch thing that I don't know? Which is weird because if I pick anyone to ask about a film that I don't understand, you're first on my list to be like watch this and tell me what is happening. So the fact that this one kind of, I think in a way stumped both of us uh, because it does, it feels like it's saying so many things, but it's not zeroing in on one. And so it makes it like really intriguing. So again, I found it really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, And it's not like obtuse, you know, it's not like something so, so vague that there's no possible way you'd get it. It's just that things don't work together. So for that, I would say it's a, a jumble of pieces that you have to put together your own puzzle for. And I'll give it a 9.1 kaputs. Wow, that's an intense. That's a really high score. That's, I wasn't expecting you to come away with it with that, uh, that 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 much praise. I just think that that yeah, like this is just another aspect of film that is so much fun. That's not necessarily a story. It's not necessarily uh, an emotion or a feeling or a psychological state. It's it's something else entirely, which is what postmodern uh, art is. It's 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 a critique of what came before. Yeah, no, I, that's that's a good way to put it. Um, I put I put this at a seven out of ten kaputs because mm. again I I found this fascinating and it was one and we were both really excited to talk about to just be able to bounce ideas off each other come up coming up with theories for this was a lot of fun like even the ones I came up with that were bad theories about it like the one about it being all in Marina's head that was one I came up with mm. I don't think it's a good interpretation of the film but this movie stayed with me and it was so intriguing that I was like let me try to piece this together in any way possible mm-hmm. and so I I love that this movie was able to do that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think seven out of 10 and, and then, yeah, that's what you say. 9.5, 9.1, 9.1. So it's still really high. I, I would absolutely suggest this movie. If you, again, if we, 
are going to bring any movies to people's minds of like kind of exploring new things besides, you know, the schlock that ends up in theaters. I think this would be a great one to go to. You just get past the subtitles and if you get engaged with it, I think it's a really good watch. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so with that, we're wrapping this one up. Uh, I just want to thank uh, resident film snob Calvin for being on. Oh, always happy to be here. And uh, you can find our podcast on any platform like Spotify or Apple Music. We also upload all these to YouTube. Again, we got the suggestion to watch this from our YouTube comments. So go ahead and leave a comment, uh, make a suggestion, tell us what we're doing well, tell us what we're doing wrong. And uh, with that, thank you for listening to Now This Is Podcasting.